as I've said before in our look at Acts, perhaps the most important developments, uh, innovations in history, is the rule of law bequeathed to us by the Roman Empire. And until I began this uh, sermon series on Acts, you know, I'd always heard that modern jurisprudence is based on Roman law, but I never knew exactly how much. My view of the Roman Empire was rather parochial, a, a government centered on Rome with far-flung provinces, you know, all over the known world, uh, with little interaction between those two places. And while that has truth to it, while the Roman Empire in its entirety had a great resemblance the Roman Empire in its entirety had a great resemblance to the British Empire of the 1700s to the mid-1900s. A conquering Western power, and conquering in one way or another, sometimes just on influence, sometimes in actual wars, but a conquering Western power whose administration of those conquered areas also uplifted often barbaric peoples with the imposition of what we know as Western civilization. And my use of imposition, okay, of Western civilization was meant for accuracy and not in any way for criticism, okay? Western civilization is undeniably a blessing of God and mankind has been thus blessed with the fruits of Western ideas for 2,500 years, maybe a little bit more than that. Western notions of jurisprudence uh, tops the list. Uh, today we will take a look at a, um, a Roman proconsul who's acting as a judge, they did both of these things, whose decision not to take a case would have ramifications for the next 2,000 years, okay? And while the, this Roman judge's decision of no standing, it was actually, uh, uh, the term was beyond the scope of his court. We have a lawyer sitting here. He will correct me for every, I will ask him to correct me for every mistake that I make here on law. But I do know that, uh, that when the uh, proconsul of Corinth, uh, of Achaia, ruled the way he ruled, that he said it was beyond this court's scope. This redounded to the good for the Apostle Paul uh, and through him for God's church for all time. And a precedent in law was set that would ultimately be used for good or bad. You may recall, this is ancient history, but you may recall that we had an election three years ago in this country. The aftermath of that messy COVID-induced, inspired uh, election has been clouded by allegations of vote fraud uh, through ballot harvesting, through unsecured mail-in ballots, the stopping of actually reporting election results and counting the ballots, all the way up to illegally cha changing the results of those votes. It is reported on mainstream news that Republicans have lost 
every court challenge that has been tried, and that is both true and false. Before the election, Republican lawyers filed suit challenging state attorneys general, allowing arbitrary changes to the voting laws in their constitutions of the several states. A little bit of founding father language there. Uh, Republicans said you can't just change these laws. These laws have to be changed by le legislature. They challenged not just that, but early voting, extended voting, mail-in ballots, and um, untended collection boxes, only to have all of these suits dismissed because harm had yet not yet occurred to the plaintiffs. So saying that they had no standing may not be true, but they were dismissed because there, there, no harm had been done. So after the election, after the harm, meaning election fraud, occurred, those these same suits that were brought afterwards because um, were dismissed because no remedy for the harm was available. So we got harm hadn't happened, and after the harm happened, there's no remedy. Republicans were barred before and after the election of bringing suits over that election. They had no standing before the courts in this regard. So today, as we look at uh, Acts 18, 9 through 17, keep that in mind. Uh, last week, uh, Silas and Timothy arrived in Corinth to assist Paul in his work. Paul was preaching in the synagogue to the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles, but upon being rejected by them, Paul shook out his clothes, as you'll recall, in the synagogue and removed himself and the Christians, the new converts who had become Christian. They moved next door to um, start their church in the home of Titius Justus, who also we believe to be the gayest of 1 Corinthians. This served to outrage the Jews in Corinth. Now, we have seen that, first of all, Paul had joined with Aquila and Priscilla, who had been Jews thrown out of Rome because of trouble there. Trouble has followed Paul everywhere he has gone on his missionary journey. Now they're in Corinth. The Jews have rejected him. He takes his mission to the Gentiles, and the Jews are outraged all over again. This shaking out of his clothes outraged the Jews in Corinth even more, and the persecution that had dogged Paul's missionary journeys broke out again. So today, Acts 18, 9 through 17 reads, And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. But when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul, and brought him before the tribunal, saying, This man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, 
If it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it is a matter of questions about words and names and your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of these things. And he drove them from the tribunal, and they all seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. But Gallio paid no attention to any of this. As Paul makes preparations to continue his ministry in the new location, the Lord comes to him in a vision, and you'll recall that Paul has had visions before. But the Lord comes to him in a vision to confirm his outreach to the Gentiles and to give him both courage and his own promises for the coming work. Having been continuously traveling during his missionary journeys, Now Paul will establish residency for some time at a base in Corinth. In fact, for the next five years, he will basically put his missionary outreach on hold and concentrate on two places, Corinth and Ephesus, for his ministry. Two very important cities. So for five years, he's going to be going between these two churches, strengthening them, putting leaders in place, teaching them himself. Verse 9 says, And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent. Paul was familiar with his master's voice, you may know. Uh, His first run-in with Jesus, all he heard was his master's voice. He did not see Jesus at all because he'd been blinded on the road to Damascus. Here, uh, later in Arabia, when Jesus instructed him face to face in Christianity. As you recall, he says, I was taught this by no man, but from the Lord. He had heard his master's voice and seen his face. So in the vision that comes to him now, he does not even question who it is. Here Jesus gives Paul two direct commands. One of the most common commands in the Bible, and I I taught on this once, do not be afraid, okay? occurs hundreds of times in the Bible. Just hundreds in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Angel comes to Mary, do not be afraid. The angels uh, announcing Jesus' birth to the shepherds, do not be afraid. Man tends to be afraid. And God here says, Jesus says to him, do not be afraid. And the second was, go on speaking and do not be silent. To this, Jesus added three promises to the apostle in verse 10. For I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you. For I have many in this city who are my people. And with these three promises from God, Paul could put everything else out of his mind and devote himself to the task the Lord had for him. He would not be harmed. He, no one would attack him. Jesus was with him, and there were many in this city, Jesus says, who are my people. Verse 11 says, And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them, which I just covered, but... This brings us now to our history portion of the sermon as we take a look at verse 12. 
But when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal. So what to tackle first here in this verse? Um, let's start with Luke as a consummate historian. While Luke is often lambasted for his choice of terms for government officials, archaeology seems to always show him to be right, even at the expense of people writing at the time who should have known better. Here he calls a man named Gallio a proconsul. Previously, he's talked to people in this position as a tetrarch. Uh, he uses various terms, but the terms are specific to the areas they are. Uh, one of the uh, commentators I read uh, is Richard Longnecker, and he says that, that Luke distinguishes correctly between senatorial and imperial provinces and has the former governed by a proconsul on behalf of the Senate and the latter governed by a propactor, propraetor, a praetor, we had that before, uh, praetor representing the emperor says much for his accuracy for the status of provinces changed with the times. Achaia was a senatorial province from 27 BC to AD 15, and then again from AD 44 onwards, which we're dealing with here. Oh, therefore it was governed by a proconsul. Macedonia, however, which he had just come from, was an imperial province, and therefore Luke rightly called the magistrates at Philippi praetors. So he has the terms right, even though it's switching back and forth. My only point of this is that rather than being a haphazard retelling of stories down the line, Luke did his research and knew correct terms for these people, for the times that he was dealing with. Next, who was this man? Gallio. This is, I find this fascinating. Gallio... Now, remember me talking about my provincial attitude towards um, Roman history, far-flung places with... Gallio was born in Cordova, Spain, okay? He was a Spaniard. Now he is in Greece. Before, after he left Spain, his father took him to Rome. He was from an extremely prominent family, and you're going to know his father and his brother, I believe. You will know their names. His birth name was Marcus Aeneas Novatus. He was the son of Marcus Aeneas Seneca. Okay, Seneca is one of the most famous Roman orators ever. Okay, he was world-renowned. He was known as Seneca the Elder, because guess what? There is a Seneca the Younger. Gallio's brother is Seneca the Younger. Uh, Seneca the Younger was a Stoic philosopher, a politician, and a playwright. Now, when, his, when Gallio's father brought them to Rome during the reign of our friend Claudius, you'll remember Claudius. Claudius is going to show up again. Uh, in this, tangentially. But when he was brought there during the uh, reign of Claudius, Gallio was adopted by a prominent man named Lucius Junius Gallio. And, and this is a common thing. 
to be adopted by another person in Roman society. Many of the Roman emperors were adopted by the emperor before them and then became emperors themselves. We're going to be seeing uh, Nero. Nero was adopted by our friend Claudius here uh, and groomed to be emperor. So it was a common thing. It wasn't that he left his father and never talked to him again. He still was in contact with his brother and his father, but a prominent Roman family wanted him in their family and adopted him as their son. And he took the family's name Gallio, and that is how we know him here. Gallio was known as a man of immense charm. His brother Seneca said of him, no mortal is so pleasant to anyone than Gallio is to everyone, okay? He was a pleasant man. He liked everybody. Everybody liked him. No mortal is so pleasant to anyone than Gallio is to everyone. But as liked as Gallio was, Gallio didn't necessarily really like everybody. Like many Romans, because of the troubles that have been caused, he was not happy with the Jews. He's been called anti-Semitic in, in my commentaries. I don't think it's so much that as the same with the Emperor Claudius. You guys have crossed the line too many times out of my presence. So, as background, Claudio was no friend of Jews. Verses 12 through 13 read, But when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal, saying, This man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. Now, the word here brought him before the tribunal, and it sounds like he's coming in front of a bunch of men. The word they translate here as a, a tribunal is bema or bema, which means judgment seat. And the judgment seat in Corinth was in the agora, the marketplace, and it was a raised uh, stone platform where Gallio would take his place to hear the complaints that were brought to him. So it was here in a highly public setting because it was Jewish law in the Roman Empire that Jews could bring their grievances publicly to be heard so that they weren't treated unfairly because they were treated unfairly a lot because they were a nuisance. It was here that Paul was brought. The charge that the Jews brought against Paul, other Jews in other cities had brought before, that he was breaking Roman law by teaching a, a religio illicitum, an illicit religion. Now, have you ever heard of anybody using, and I did in here, uh, have you ever heard anybody call something licit? Okay? It's sort of like uh, the whelming flood, and uh, my hope is built on nothing less. Every time you hear the word whelming, it's overwhelming, except in my hope is built on nothing less, where it is a whelming flood. This is the same thing with illicit. We never hear illicit. Licit is legal. Illicit is illegal. So he is accused of teaching a religio illicitum, as we have seen previously, breaking Roman law was a death penalty offense. So Gallio's verdict was literally a life, matter of life and death to Paul. 
but even greater importance to the new Christian church because it could put an end to the Christian church right here. So Paul is brought before Gallio, who would judge him. And the Jews of Corinth stated their charge, advocating for an illegal religion. Paul was about to speak words in his defense, and we've seen him do this often, and he is very eloquent. But it says, but when Paul, verse 14, but when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, if it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. Well, it wasn't a vicious crime. It wasn't a matter of wrongdoing. Paul never got a chance to speak. Gallio ruled that the Jews of Corinth basically had no standing before his Roman court. It would have been different if there had been any wrongdoing, any vicious crime, any Roman laws broken by the Apostle Paul. But deciding no laws of the empire were broken, Gallio goes on in verse 15, but since it is a matter of questions about words and names and your own law, see to it yourself. I refuse to be a judge of these things. Now, the Jews, of course, did not think that the Christians were Jews anymore. But the Hebrew Jews were still worshiping in the synagogue. I'm positively certain that if we could ask Paul, did you consider yourself a Jew? He said, I would have considered myself the best Jew, a completed Jew. We call them today a Messianic Jew. He was still going to the synagogue, even though he did not believe that the ceremonial law was for him any longer. I believe you would have found that he thought that this was a dispute between two Jews also him and the synagogue. In effect, Gallio rules that this was not a matter for the Roman Empire. Instead, it was an internal Jewish matter, a disagreement of words between two opposing Jewish viewpoints, which I think Paul would say too. When he teaches the Jews about the Messiah having to suffer and be crucified, he goes to the Old Testament. He goes to the Jews' own scripture and brings it back to them. In refusing to hear the matter, in fact, saying that it was outside the rules, uh, cognito extra ordinum, an inquiry outside of the order, uh, in doing so, Galileo said it was simply a matter, and get this, a matter of words and names and Jewish law. And here is another irony in his statement. Word in Greek was, of course, logos. So they were arguing about logos, and where do we hear that? Uh, Jesus is the word. Um, it was names. The names in this ruling would have included Messiah and Jesus. I mean, it's just Jewish names, uh, you know, the Messiah and Jews. And the law that he cites here was Jewish law that they're arguing about. They're not arguing about Roman law. They're, this is an internal Jewish matter. And I would have to think that Gallio, by refusing to take this case, ruled properly. Richard Longnecker, who I quoted before, also says that Gallio's refusal to take the case 
had profound repercussions. It was in fact the recognition of Christianity as a legal religion, okay, because he would not take it. It was part of Jewish religion, and the Jews were a legal religion. So this de facto says that Christianity is a legal religion. And the decision of so prominent a Roman proconsul would set a heavy precedent. And here's my provincialism again, you know, Roman law. We hear so much about precedent now, nowadays. Supreme Court precedent, you can't break the Supreme Court precedent. They had the same thing back then that spread throughout the empire. Everybody knew who Gallio or his father and brother, the Senecas, were, and were, they were respected throughout the empire. And his refusal to take this case meant that should it come before any other co courts, they also would not take the case. And indeed, this action by Gallio would buy Christianity a dozen years of peace from basically right now with uh, AD 5152 to AD 63-64, a time that would allow Paul to strengthen, build up, find leaders for the churches that he's done throughout the Roman Empire that he'd been to so far. As a parting gesture of goodwill, and to show how Gallio really felt about the Jews, verse 17 says, and he drove them from the tribunal. You know, he didn't just politely dismiss them. He didn't say, you know, when, when Paul was before the uh, Areopagus, and they said, oh, we'll hear more from you about this later, you know. That's a polite dismissal by Roman or Greek officials. Here it says, and he drove them from the tribunal. Um, it wasn't just enough to dismiss them. They were driven out of his presence. And the crowd of Greeks gathered in the marketplace took their cue from the rude treatment of uh, Paul's Jewish accusers by the Roman proconsul because verse 17 ends our, our section for today with this. And they all seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. But Gallio <clears throat> paid no attention to any of this. Okay? Now, before any one of you say, good for, good for the mob, uh, uh, Sosthenes needed to be beaten like a drum, okay? Um, I have a few pieces of information for you to chew on about Sosthenes here. Though Sosthenes may have been chosen to replace, remember Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue left? Uh, he may have been chosen to replace uh, him. But more likely is that there was more than one ruler in the synagogue at Corinth, uh, Corinth. Knowing that there was only the one synagogue and there were a number of Jews, they probably had, like we like in a functioning church to have a plurality of elders, they would have more than one ruler of the synagogue and he and Crispus were probably co-rulers therefore friends Sosthenes um, may even have been a Christian sympathizer as well explaining why 
the problem he brought before the pro-council was waited to be thrown out of court because they didn't show really that he was breaking any laws. It was between Jews and an argument. So some have surmised that like Crispus, who was an out-and-out Christian convert, Sosthenes may have leaned favorably towards Christians. And one more pertinent piece of information, Paul's first letter to the church in Corinth begins, this is verse 1 through 3, okay. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus, and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours, grace to you and peace from God our Father, from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul writes the letter from somewhere else with Sosthenes, okay? And people will say, well, Sosthenes was a common Greek name. There could have been another Sosthenes. I won't deny that at all. I just don't believe that in the use of names in the New Testament that there is a coincidence that the Sosthenes here in Acts in Corinth and the Sosthenes in 1 Corinthians 1-1 I truly believe are the same people because that's why the names were used. That this beating of Sosthenes was allowed by Gallio in his presence who saw it but turned a blind eye uh, to the event uh, once again points to Gallio's contempt for Jews. Despite historical accounts of his charm and wit, this episode stands as a blot on Gallio's character. I, there's no doubt about it that this is a little bit of a case of an unjust judge not putting an end to the extracurricular activities of the mob. So, I'm sure that the Jews of 51 AD felt much about the same about uh, Gallio's refusal to hear their case against Paul and his illicit religion as I do about the judicial failure to hear the suits about the illicit election of 2020. And I will make no bones about it. It should have been heard. We do not have the facts. We don't know if there, it was an illicit election. Perhaps the resolution to that uh, law-breaking um, by attorneys generals in several states will be rectified in next year's election. For the Jews of the Roman Empire, the judgment against their Christian adversaries would come beginning in 62 AD. Emperor Nero, our adopted son of Claudius, had become emperor of Rome in 54 AD at the age of 16. So after this event, he was not, Nero was not our uh, um, emperor at this time, but he was a short four years later. He was 16 years old when he took power upon Claudius' death. That was the high point of Nero's life. Everything else is downhill from there. It was a long, slow decline, aided by a lust for power his own personal cruelty, 
and mental illness occurring over the next decade. His mother, who engineered him getting into power by marrying Claudius, his half-brother, he had killed. His Octavia, his stepsister slash wife, he had killed after he divorced her. After divorcing Octavia, he married Papea Sabina, who was a Jewish, how do they put it, adherent, an adherent to Judaism. So she was what we would call a God-fearing Gentile who did not have Christian sensitivities. And she steered Nero, who had not previously been against Christians, but she steered Nero in his persecution of Christians. And while everybody I read believes that Nero was not responsible for the Roman fire, the fire that destroyed Rome, that he was out of town at the time and hurried back to take care of people. The fact is that when accused himself of starting the fire, it wasn't us of our day that would say this, it, it was the rumor back then, uh, he blamed it on Christians and the wholesale of, uh, persecution of Christians started at that time. I would say that the Jews got what they wanted at this time, but remember, Judaism really only exists for another three to five years in the form God intended because they will be judged and Jerusalem will soon be destroyed by these Romans who are persecuting Christians. And what happened to Gallio? Okay. Gallio, it, uh, his brother Seneca, was the tutor for Nero. Okay. And Nero's closest advisor until he fell out of power and was made to commit suicide. Gallio, Gallio also was caused to commit suicide rather than be tortured and killed. Nero didn't just kill Christians, you see. He killed his mother, his brother, his stepsister wife, his uh, Seneca the Younger, Gallio, uh, and other notable Romans. Uh, Nero was just not a good guy. So, both the Bible and secular history is filled with every sort of people. Heroes, villains, and the everyday common folk who uh, are trying to get by but are called to make potentially momentous decisions at one time or another in their otherwise humdrum lives. Today we saw Gallio essentially wash his hands of the situation before him just as Pontius Pilate did 20 years before with Jesus. Gallio's action, or rather inaction, non-action, let an innocent man go free. Pontius Pilate's, on the other hand, his action condemned a man that he stated to be innocent twice to be crucified to death. Both of these non-actions, while not covering their, um, these persons in glory, nevertheless advanced God's plan. Okay? And I guess this is my point for today. Gallio not doing something advanced God's plan. Pilate doing something advanced God's plan.
I've often said that if your uh, name is listed in the Bible for all time, you know, it's a really great thing unless your name is Ananias and Sapphira. I, just a line I like. You know, it's better to be a Paul or a Timothy or a Sosthenes who made, who made an unpopular, well, maybe it was a popular move against an unpopular Paul. But all of these people play a part for good or ill in God's ultimate plan. Pilate, Timothy, Ananias, Sapphira, Paul, Aquila, Priscilla, they all have a part to play. But only God has a vote on the outcome. You make your choice, you do your action, your inaction, but God has the final vote on what happens. And in these days, they're coming ahead for our country. It's not enough. Well, let me put it this way. Beginning of the Civil War, Abraham Lincoln had somebody come to him and say, I pray that we have God on our side. And Abraham Lincoln said, I would rather be on God's side than hope that God is on my side. As we go through tumultuous times, we need to make sure we're on God's side. As we go through these things, pray that we are on God's side. Let's close in prayer.